Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and today I'm talking to Andrew Harding about a small, stubborn town, life, death, and defiance in Ukraine, published in July by Ethica. Anyone who watches the BBC's coverage of the war in Ukraine will recognise Andrew Harding, reporting from the front line in blue helmet and body armour. However, for the last 14 years, he's been the BBC's Africa correspondent living in Johannesburg, and it was Africa that was the subject of his two previous books, The Mayor of Mogadishu and These Are Not Gentle People, which was turned into an award-winning radio series called Bloodlands. He began his career in Moscow and Tbilisi and has covered conflicts in Chechnya, Azerbaijan, Abkhazia and Kosovo. With a small step in town, he captures in a novelistic form the 10-day battle for Voznesensk in the first days of the war. Why this short battle in this small town? As one of the few professional soldiers involved says at the end of the book, this, quote, one small, decisive and improbable victory almost certainly saved Ukraine from a larger encirclement and most likely from the prospect of defeat. So, uh, Andrew, welcome. Thank you, Tim. It's good to be here. Um, where are you at the moment? Because I was just watching you on TV in um, Kramatorsk last night. Uh, so I'm in the Donbass. I'm near Kramatorsk. Um, we've actually moved out of Kramatorsk uh, for this trip because it was starting to get hit a lot um, when we were last here uh, earlier this year. Um, and so we, we've moved elsewhere. Um, but I've been a few weeks now in around Bakhmut, further south on the, the front lines that, you know, the Russians are you the Ukrainians, I'm sorry, are hoping to break through to get down towards the the Black Sea and down in Kherson as well, where where of course there was the terrible flooding after the the reservoir was uh, was emptied by the the sabotage of of the Kakhovka Dam. Mm. So, um, well, I mean, let's set the scene for the book. Um, could you give a potted history of this battle and why it was that you? First went to Voznesensk soon after the soon after the battle finished. So I arrived in in March in Odessa um, to start covering the conflict, and we were we headed straight to Mykolaiv, which was the frontline town um, next to Kherson, which you may remember was the first big city that the Russians captured when they yeah. burst out of the Crimean Peninsula on the twenty fourth of February, and were heading from Kherson to Mykolaiv, and then hoping to sweep along the coast to Odessa to take the whole of Ukraine's Black Sea coast and really to begin an encircling move that I think the Ukrainian government would have perhaps struggled to contain or, or to rebut. Um, in Mykolaiv, it quickly became clear that the Russians had been halted, um, but we then learned that they had headed upstream, up the southern Boo River to the next town and the next bridge. And we then heard that there had been a short battle in Voznesensk for the bridge and that the Russians had suffered an extraordinary and unlikely defeat because it was, you know, a very well-armed, seemingly well-planned operation with helicopter support and so on. And I read about it um, about the battle and quickly decided that we should follow up and uh, and see what we could find out about what had happened there. And as soon as we got to Voznesensk, it, it was clear that this was something special, that the whole town was kind of 
just giddy in a way with with the with victory and stunned by their own success and this is a small farming town that had assumed that it was going to have to fight off this russian column on its own and unlike other towns which had quietly stood back and allowed the russians to pass through this town decided to stand its ground but it was only just on the eve of the battle that they were unexpectedly reinforced by about 300 Ukrainian infantrymen and paratroopers, which, of course, made all the difference in reality. Mm. Although you, you do, you, well, I don't know if you say, but you certainly imply that they were going to do something even if those uh, um, those troops hadn't turned up. Exactly. I mean, they've been preparing for this since the 24th uh, because they had a pretty good idea that as events were moving so fast, their bridge was likely to be targeted by the Russians. They're also in an area with lots of crucial nuclear power stations, one just up the hill really from them behind town. And so they were also thinking that that could be a strategic target for the Russians. And so the town council, local volunteers local farmers and businessmen all kind of came together in a bit of a, I mean, it's not quite a dad's army. It was more impressive and organized than that. But still, these were just ordinary people, mostly, with very little military experience who gathered a few guns, a few grenades, and went and stood in little ditches and trenches on the outskirts of town, waiting for what they assumed was almost certain defeat. Mm. Well, I, the, the whole thing seemed to spark your imagination in the same way as um, the events that led to your book, These Are Not Gentle People. How quickly did you decide you wanted to turn it into a book or did someone have to persuade you? I, I realised almost as soon as I walked across a field in a village on the eastern outskirts and bumped into a woman called Svetlana who came charging out of her cottage, grabbed me by the hand and started talking super fast in this sort of wonderful engaging style about what had happened. Essentially, her cottage had been turned by the Russians into a command post, a field hospital, and then a kind of makeshift prison. And I completely kind of was bowled over by Svetlana and realised that she was the kind of character around which one could potentially build a novel. But when I say a novel, I mean a, a non-fiction yeah narrative non-fiction novel, which is what I tried to write. Um, but there were many other people as well in town who, who helped me um, to kind of reach that conclusion quite quickly. But then came the struggle um, to work out what kind of book it would be and also what sort of time span, because books normally take a, you know, a good year and a half from the, um, the deal, if you like, or the start to publication. And my original publishers were worried that that might be too late, that the situation in Ukraine could have changed beyond all recognition, that there might not be interest. You know, it's it's it, it was just a difficult sell. And then a new publisher came in and said, well, you know what? Actually, this isn't a book length book. It's a short book and it's a quick book. If you can do that for us, you know, in the next few months, We'll publish it as soon as feasible. And so that's really unlocked it for me. And I sat down back in my home in South Africa and started writing very quickly. And, and the book actually 
was sort of almost emerged from from that publisher's decision you know rather than the initial idea I had of a longer book suddenly it all crystallized around that idea of doing something much shorter and and much quicker well it, I mean it is short and pacey but it but its structure is quite complex in parts um it can't have been easy to build I mean you do you do sort of you do a bit of time travel between the 10 days and you also you also see some events from different angles, like the shell that kills uh, Serhi, for example. Uh, mm. I mean, how long did it take you from you know sitting down at your desk and uh, to 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 you know writing the last sentence? Maybe six weeks. I mean, the thing is, I'm a I, I've been doing timed essays for the BBC and others for for the last thirty years. So you know, writing fast is not really a problem the problem as you sort of hinted there was the structure and um i decided essentially to write the strands of the different characters because it's very much character driven um as well as obviously in terms of the the pacing of the battle you know which unfolds over three days Hmm. um and there's a bit of history and you know the 10 days before that as well um, or the week before that. Um, but I wrote it through the eyes of these different characters and then tried to structure it afterwards. Um, and, and that helped me, uh, I think, to kind of to unlock it. And di- I mean, did you start with Fetlana and sort of build out from that? And I did, what, what, yeah. 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 I had this idea of, I mean, she's one of these characters who doesn't just tell you what happens but recalls each conversation what she was thinking what everyone around her was saying and these are invaluable when you're trying to reconstruct a kind of narrative which you want to be driven by dialogue even if it's remembered or half remembered and so I I often tried with other characters as well you know people I wanted to include in the book to say what they recall other people saying or what they were thinking or what they'd said so that it could feel vivid and still as accurate as possible, but so that it didn't feel like a journalistic retelling, but more like a novel. Yeah. Uh, And I mean, you, you were clearly driven at the beginning by her personality, but you, you pull out this theme towards the end of the book. uh, I mean, right at the end of the book about her, her, her mixed origin and the the decision she makes, you know, who who she's going to be, was that? Did you have that in your head right from the start, or did that develop as you? Well, first of all, could you explain what that is to to the listeners? What I'm what I'm talking about, and uh, and also was that something that emerged in the writing or before you sat down to write? I feel like I need to to give a spoiler alert for this. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, one of the things, of course, in the east particularly of Ukraine, is that people have complex identities. So many people are Russian speakers, first and foremost. Some also speak Ukrainian or a kind of hybrid Russian-Ukrainian. And some people have mixed emotions about Crimea, about the East, about Russia. Over the course of this war in the last year and a half, most Ukrainians and most people living in Ukraine have hardened their views very, very clearly um, and now feel very much Ukrainian. And indeed, I mean, if there was any ambiguity about Ukraine as a nation, you know, which I would dispute, but if there were any ambiguity, it has vanished thanks to Russia's invasion. Uh, And many of the people I met, even when it came to the spelling of their names, had different views on it. You know, maybe their, their spelling had always been Russian, 
in the Russian alphabet and the Russian style uh, of spelling, and they struggle to convert it to Ukrainian, but it doesn't mean they're not Ukrainians. And that's the case with Svetlana, who, when I initially reported on the story for the BBC, I didn't realize that she'd actually grown up in Russia, was Russian, um, because she's married to a Ukrainian and is very, very pro-Ukraine, even though some of her neighbors in the village feel differently and uh, you know quite open about that fact and so I wanted to kind of delay that revelation because I thought that it would be more powerful towards the end of the book when you've kind of come to know this woman as a Ukrainian and then you sort of peel back the layers of complexity and there's another similar example which is that the Russians who actually came charging out of the Crimean Peninsula on the 24th of February last year, plenty of them, by no means all, by no means a majority, but plenty of them, thousands of them are ethnic Ukrainians who were serving in the Ukrainian army and pledged allegiance to Ukraine. And then in 2014, when the Kremlin sent those little green men and uh, took over the Crimean Peninsula, annexed it illegally, they essentially shrugged and said, well, you know, we're loyal to the idea of the Soviet army, to our, you know, to our legendary past in the Second World War. The Russians seem to be more organized. Ukraine is in a bit of a mess. Let's just stick where we are. We have housing and so on. And only later um, would they start to come to admit that they may might have made a terrible mistake when they found themselves mm. essentially or literally invading their own country at the head of a a foreign army yeah i mean it, it, i mean the contrast to svetlana is her is her sort of an enigmatic neighbor mikhail um who she, you know she makes one choice and he makes another he 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 he, he keeps this what you call he he takes refuge in in ambiguity do you think 15 months on from your experience of, of being there all this time, um, do you think there are more Svetlanas than Mikhail's now? Are there many Mikhail's left? You know, um, just a couple of days ago, there was a big explosion just down the road in Kramatorsk. You'll have, as you mentioned, seen it on the news. Um, dozens injured, at least 12 people killed, a Russian missile attacking a popular city centre, restaurant, hotel. Um, it seems the Ukrainians have arrested somebody, a local man who's a Russian sympathiser. And, you know, this part of Ukraine had pro-Russians, pro-Russian militias back in 2014, and there are still sympathisers. And the further east you go, as the towns and the cities and the villages empty out closer to the front lines, the people who remain behind are generally very old, very poor, and have nowhere else to go further west. And those people often, you'll find, are more pro-Russian. They'll have listened for years to Russian propaganda on their TVs and will have sometimes stayed behind in the often kind of deeply naive belief that somehow the war and the front lines will pass over them, they will survive, and they will end up in Russian territory. Now, some people, I think, have, have sort of realized 
in time that that's not how wars work, particularly not Russian wars, you know, that they will be obliterated as the Russian front line moves forward. But some people have spent time in basements, months in basements, and then, you know, the, the front lines have moved one way and moved back, and now they find themselves back inside Ukraine and, and obviously are having to make sort of awkward compromises about what they did or didn't do or who they supported or didn't support. Mm. Of course, the the other uh, sort of cognitive dissonance you you identify is that when when the Russian soldiers were initially coming through the town, they they seemed to be first puzzled and sometimes furious that that the Ukrainians were fighting back. Um, do do you think that kind of attitude has has completely faded among among Russian soldiers? Do they has that sort of this this assumption about Slavic solidarity has has vanished now? Yeah, that's gone. I mean, the thing about wars these days is the the frontline infantry, everyone has mobile phones, everyone knows what's going on. They can hear what, you know, Yevgeny Prigozhin is saying about the war and why it was started, you know, him admitting that it was about corruption, it was about distraction, it had nothing to do with NATO, it had nothing really to do with Ukraine, it was simply a way for corrupt elites to make more money and to profit from the war. Um, And I don't think there are any people in any doubt anymore about this idea that Ukraine is going to welcome Russian soldiers with with flowers and open arms. Um, There's a moment in in the book that I, you know, I particularly remember hearing about, which was when Russian paratroopers, you know, pretty elite forces were trying to capture a, a water pumping station that was being defended by real dad's army types from Voznesensk. And the Russians shouted across this sort of small gap of a few meters between the troops. They shouted, Svaich, which it's a tricky word to translate in that way. It's basically going, we're yours, you're ours. Um, we're on the same side and couldn't believe that these idiots in Ukraine didn't understand that that this was a war about something else, about the propaganda that they'd swallowed, um, and which now I do think most of them have, have certainly from the radio intercepts we, you know, we hear near the front lines, I, I think all those illusions have been shattered. Hmm. Well, uh, among the, char- the, the central characters of the book are the, the mayor, uh, Yevhenyi, and his two sidekicks, Andrei and Spartak. I, I interviewed recently Samuel Romani about his book on the war, and he, he he thinks that some of the big unsung heroes of the war, especially in the southeast, have been the mayors and local officials. Is that something that you've picked up as well in your reporting? Absolutely. I mean, it is astonishing how young so many people in political office are in so many towns and cities. They're almost overwhelmingly in their 30s. It reminds me of what Mikhail Saakashvili did in Georgia uh, when he took over and just said, people over 40 or over 50 are, 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 are not going to be part of the solution here. They've grown up in the wrong mindset. We need to get the youth in. And he, you know, it hasn't worked out longer term as well as, mm. as many adults, but in the short term, he transformed Ukraine, uh, Georgia, and it's it's the same thing that I think Putin and and so many Russian apologists 
failed to notice in Ukraine, which is that since 2014 in particular, this is a country that has transformed itself. It is very different to the kind of corrupt, grey, sort of former Soviet uh, basket case that people remember from you know the, the late 90s the early 2000s this kind of struggling country that really hadn't found itself yet since 2014 certainly from what i've seen um you know over the last year and a half this is a young country everyone you talk to says oh i'm in it everyone's just buzzing with energy with determination and with this real national spirit that has been I think, you know, super um, hyper-driven by the conflict now. Mm. Well, you, you begin the book with, I mean, the very opening scene is Svetlana being defiant or even cussed with uh, with one of the Russian soldiers. And you end with the this image of this Miami beach that's been, uh, that's been uh, developed uh, on the river. And you end with the sentence, "This is what defiance feels like." Was that was that a framing technique between the you know the contrast of the two the two acts of defiance? Wouldn't that have been clever? <laughs> <laughs> I I don't think I consciously did that, but I certainly had throughout the book this idea that I wanted this fundamentally to be an upbeat story um, uh, because I knew that it was coming out at a time when the war for sure would not have been resolved one way or another. And I didn't want to write, I mean, one of the reasons this story attracted me and the timing of it, of telling it attracted me, was that it is a very positive tale of Russian defeat and Ukrainian defiance. Um, It's not a bloodbath. It's not Butcher or Irpin. Those stories, of course, demand telling, will be told, must be told. But I didn't want to kind of offer a perspective on a conflict halfway through that just felt depressing and that would not inspire people. I wanted to write something that did speak to what I think so many of us who who are covering this conflict in particular find inspiring, and that is this extraordinary sense of of a country fighting for its survival. And although, of course, as I describe in the book, there are people who run away, there are people who are cowards, or there are people who are just naturally, ordinarily reluctant to risk their lives. But, you know, and I meet these people every day now, where I am now, going out to the front lines, I'm off again tomorrow. And and you meet young people, garage mechanics, um, housewives, people who are now wearing camouflage and who are risking their lives in, in hellish conditions on the front lines. Have you run into any of the same people? I mean, I'm thinking particularly of Ghost, uh, who, who who had actually fought in Bakhmut before. Have you run into any of the people from uh, Voznesensk in, in, other, in other areas? I've met some of them, and I've spoken to some of them by phone more often in Mikhailayev and uh, and around the Donbass. Um, And I've kept in touch with with quite a few of them since I finished writing the book. And, you know, I'm very much hoping to get a a Ukrainian translation um, and and publish it here and, and, you know, do a launch and events in in Voznesensk and, you know, anywhere else that will have me, because I, I hope... You know, I mean, clearly there are going to be issues 
whenever, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Ukrainian specialist. I spent 10 years in Russia in the 90s. I visited Ukraine a lot. But this is a country that, as I say, has changed a lot. And I don't pretend to know everything. But, I, you know, I've had this access and this experience of the last year and a half. I speak Russian, so I have, you know, some rapport with people, particularly in the East, on a, on a linguistic basis. And I hope that it captures something of what they've gone through um, in a way that they'll recognise and I hope appreciate. Yeah. I, I mean, I know reporters don't like to make these sort of big calls, but um, you you are on the ground there. How how? What is your sense on how this thing is going to end? I met a very tired medic a year after I'd first met him, actually, and um, I met him a couple of days ago, and he said, I don't think we can win this militarily completely. I think this will end up um, with a political decision and it was really a political deal and it was shocking surprising to hear that from somebody on the front lines because you only tend to get that in whispers from you know people friends and so on who who, who are just worn down by by what's happened by the suffering the losses and so on um at the moment the counteroffensive is on it's going slowly it's going more slowly than people had hoped more slowly than some people had expected but I am very wary of, of, of making gloomy predictions because I still think the Russian army is clearly demoralized. It's clearly in a mess. Even though there are a lot of big minefields and a lot of defenses, I still think there is a reasonable chance that Ukraine, which is still holding back most of its reinforcements, most of its big weapons, most of its you know, reserves, I, I still think they have time and opportunity to 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 make strategic breakthroughs i don't know if that will happen and i know they need to do it you know in the next few months but that's still a big window to make a difference and i also think you know and and much greater experts than than, than me have uh, than i have pointed this out which is that russia as we've seen in the past week is is more fragile than perhaps we know the military you know, has been victim of sustained corruption, the political elites are feuding. It may well be that events in Russia, another mutiny, something else, could provoke unexpected events and provoke some sort of collapse that the Ukrainians could exploit. I don't know that they're banking on that over here. I think they have their own plans, but they're pretty good at keeping those plans hidden at the moment. From your experience on the on the Eastern Front, I mean, is is occupied Donbass worth winning back now? I mean, is it is it a wasteland? A lot of towns and cities are are in ruins, and they will require the kind of rebuilding that you know that we remember from the Second World War, but also from you know Russian wars. This is how the Russians fight, and. This is what they're leaving behind. You know, a place like Bakhmut, 70,000 people once lived there. You know, it is uninhabitable now. It will have to be leveled and rebuilt. Um, but I think there's so much goodwill towards Ukraine at the moment. And if they can somehow pull off either a full victory or a partial victory and and keep their eyes on the prize, which, of course, is EU membership, NATO membership or some something close to NATO membership, which locks them into a proper security arrangement, 
then I think there's every chance that, you know, that, that Ukraine will like, you know, like Japan and Germany end up being a, a, a sort of extraordinary forceful superpower economically, certainly, you know, in the, in the years ahead, but that depends on, on something significant happening in, in Russian politics too. As usual, because this is a podcast about books, I've asked my guest to choose a couple to recommend. Uh, what, what, Andrew, what have you chosen? Um, as a non-fiction book, uh, I, there are so many colleagues and journalists who I know are working on theirs. Yaroslav Trofimov from the Wall Street Journal has got one coming out, which I'm sure will be brilliant. Many other colleagues too. There's so much to be written about this conflict. Um, but Invasion by my friend and namesake Luke Harding has already come out. It's a great first draft of, of the conflict and of history. Um, as for something fictional, uh, I have to recommend Andre Kirchhoff's wonderful Grey Bees. He's, I think, the best known of Ukraine's current um, fiction writers abroad. He's got an extraordinary collection of work, but Grey Bees capture something of the of the, the gray world of no man's land between the Russian and Ukrainian lines. It's set in that weird warped world between 2014 and the first Russian invasion and this new invasion. Um, it's beautifully translated into English. It, it features not just the Donbass, but also Crimea. Right. Well, uh, thank you for those. And thank you for doing the interview, despite the, some of the communications issues, which is understandable. And, uh, and please look after yourself. So, uh, Andrew, thanks again for coming on. Thank you very much, Tim. It's been a real pleasure.